amazing. How, how many words could we use to describe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Incredible. Uh, that's who we worship today, our Lord and Savior Jesus. And as we remain standing, we're going to read God's word. Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56 is our, is our text today. And today we'll be looking at Jesus, the scriptures. So would you hear as we read the word of God? While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the living God. May he write its truths upon our hearts this hour. Would you pray with me again? Father, come to you now in the precious name of Jesus Christ. The Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the one to whom is due all praise and honor and glory, the one with all power and majesty and authority, and yes, the one that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, struggling, praying, and coming to a place where he prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And now, Lord, as we see him move forward with really this launching of, of the passion, the suffering that will begin, I pray, God, you'd open our eyes to seeing what's behind it all and to being amazed once again at this glorious gospel, this good news that is ours through Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and God's people said, Amen. Please have a seat. Again, we're coming to the end of Matthew. We're, we're, we're in the Holy of Holies. We are now in the midst of the passion of Jesus. Passion is an old word. We, we think of it as just emotion, but it really has to do with suffering. And this is the, the suffering of Christ is, is really begun, as we looked at last week in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now we come to the, the place where he has, he's done praying and he gets up. And immediately, and, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard. We, I guess we, we can't preach on whole chapters. I guess we could sometimes, but it would be kind of tough. And so you have to take it section at a time. But if you notice right when it begins that it really doesn't have a break. And so you, you can hear him talking to the disciples, and you can hear him 
challenging them and, and, and about why are you sleeping and this and that. And then, and then you, could, you can almost feel the, 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 the marching on the ground of the soldiers and the torches that are beginning to light up a very dark place as they're coming to arrest Jesus. And there's three things we're going to see today in this passage. Broke it up into three sections. The first is that Jesus is betrayed through serving false piety. Secondly, that Jesus is not a powerless, feeble victim. He's the prophecy-fulfilling victor. And thirdly, how Jesus is failed by his followers who think the cost of discipleship is too high. So let's start with point number one and jump back into the text this morning. We'll go right through it verse by verse. Point number one, Jesus is betrayed through self-serving false piety. Verse 47 again tells us that while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And there's much we could say there, and there, there's, there's one commentator that went off on a tangent that, that I, I thought was interesting. I don't know if it was accurate, but he was talking about how the powerful call of God, the voice of Jesus, that while he's still speaking, it's almost as Judas is drawn through Jesus fulfilling his mission as he's in charge of this situation. But in particular, I want us to notice that Judas is called one of the twelve. Judas is one of the twelve. And it's interesting in the Gospels that when you think of Judas, the very name has become synonymous with being a traitor, right? It's just, it, it's, it's, it's something that, that when you say that, I don't know many people that name their sons Judas. <laughs> it's not a good name to have. It's, it's become equal to someone who commits the most heinous of treacheries. And yet in the Gospels, the gospel writers in particular, they, they really don't take a lot of time to disparage Judas in any way. They certainly tell the story of what's happening, but they don't go off on tangents about how, how horrible and evil Judas was. I, 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 they don't need to. Because simply saying something like this, or Matthew says that Judas came one of the twelve. That is enough to show how evil and how demonic the situation is, is with Judas himself. That, that he, being a close friend, an intimate one who had shared these past three years with Jesus and the other 11 disciples, walked with them, talked with them, prayed with them, ate with them, fellowship with them, lived life with them for three straight years, and that's the one, that's the one that turns him in. It's striking how Matthew points that out. G Judas, one of the twelve. Judas certainly had already left the other eleven as they were with Jesus in the upper room with having the, the Passover meal that we saw a few weeks ago. And, and, and Jesus had left that room and brought his disciples up to the Mount of Olives. And in, uh, we see in John chapter 18, which is one of the parallel passages, that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. He knew the Mount of Olives. He knew the Garden of Gethsemane. It must have been a place. Well, it was a place that they often met because John tell, tells us that, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so it didn't take much for Judas to understand what's going to be the place that Jesus is going to go on this moment. Ah, oh, he's taking them to the Garden. So he leads them there. Who does he lead? It tells Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Interesting. 
Again, I encourage you to, uh, in your outline notes are, are all the other uh, places in the Gospels that have the same story, and they all bring certain details out that are helpful for us to understand. And in John chapter 18, verse 3, it tells us that Judas himself procured these men. Judas is not just betraying Jesus. Judas is leading the betrayal. He goes out, perhaps knowing the power of Christ, or at least what he thought he knew of the power of Christ, and, and understanding uh, at least a bit of, of what he's done. And he procures a band of soldiers, John says. A band is 600 men. Think about that. You got 11 disciples in Jesus, 12 men in the, in the garden, praying, doing their thing, talking. And then you got 600 men plus. That's just the band of soldiers. Then you have other men sent from the chief priests and the elders. And so you got all these, what's really interesting to me, you have all these, these different factions in these different groups. You have the, the Pharisees and you have the Sadducees and you have, you have perhaps Romans even. Some of these might have been a cohort of Roman soldiers. These are, these are Gentiles and they're all united. Those who would have major and massive separation and disagreement on so many other things. They would argue and fight against each other. But here, they're united. Why? Because the demonic always unites against Christ. And what you have here is just that, this unholy alliance of men. Luke tells us that this is the hour and the power of darkness. Darkness is abounding in the garden at this point. And though they bring their torches to try to bring some light, they've brought nothing but darkness and evil and wickedness and death. Verse 48 says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, quote, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. Judas had thought ahead. He had premeditated all of this and planned all of this, that how do we, how do we know which is the right one? It's going to be dark there. We don't really know necessarily what he looks like. So i tell you what I'm going to do. The one that I greet with a kiss is the one. Seize him. Verse 49, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. I find it interesting that he calls him by his occupational title, if you will, which was a sign of respect, but certainly shied away from what the other disciples had called Jesus, which was the Lord, his theological title. You're the Lord, is, is what Judas is saying. You're, you're just a teacher. Greetings, Rabbi. And he kisses him. Now, the kiss was not something uncommon at this time. It's a, it was a very common and still is even to this day in the ancient Middle East and in the ancient world. And even today, you'll see places in, in the Near East and in Asia and different cultures than ours that will, you regularly will see men greet each other with a kiss. Sometimes it's, you know, one, two, and three on the cheek back and forth. It's not an uncommon thing, and so this, this is not uncommon, but Judas uses this kiss, what, what is supposed to be a display of greeting and love and affection and kindness. Judas twists and turns and uses it as a sign of betrayal. Jesus responds in verse 50 and says to him, friend, friend, do what you came to do. It's an amazing response, a response of humility, 
response of even graciousness. Certainly a response that called Judas to consider what he was doing. Do what you came to do. Literally in the Greek, it's my friend for which you are present. And again, in the language, it's very difficult to understand because you could translate it either as an imperative or as an interrogative. So it, it very well could have been a question. Friend, what did you come to do? Jesus was known to even use sarcasm in his questioning of, of times, and it certainly would have driven home some, some points that he needed Judas and the others to understand. Why are you here? Would you betray me with a kiss? Or possibly the imperative of actually do what you came to do. Here we see this kiss, this sign that's supposed to be a sign of affection. Really turned into something that's all about a self-serving false piety that Judas is now displaying. To Judas, it was all about Judas. It was all about him. And think about it for three years this man had never been converted. He, he acted it out well. He certainly spoke well and acted well and did things that they thought, whoa, hello. Come away. This is the joys of being outside. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Eric. So he, he uh, let me just say this, Judas... Judas is the clearest picture of what a Christ rejecter looks like, even among the people of God. Again, for three years, they didn't even notice. It's like, it's like someone that has cancer in the body, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it's there all along, but you never knew it. And then all of a sudden, you find out the, the, the dark truth, and it's difficult to swallow. A snake had been among them from the beginning. He is a clear picture of what a Christ rejecter is. He's the supreme example of, of wasted opportunity. He's the picture of those who, who love money, who are greedy, of those who, who would forsake the priceless Son of God for, for a, the price of 30, 30 pieces of silver. He's the classic hypocrite who faked love. He showed it on the outside, but he did not have it on the inside. He faked loyalty to Christ. Even as he would deliver him up for execution, he does it with an outward display of piety towards him. Judas is the supreme false disciple, the son of Satan who, who masquerades as a son of God. And here's what we need to be aware of. Every age has found Judases in the church. How do we respond to that? Well, as we read through gospel accounts like this, it does lead us to, in, in many ways, consider where am I in, in this story? Who would I be? And if in any way your heart is leading you to say, I don't love Christ, that maybe, maybe I'm more like Judas. I smile on the outside and inside. I have no, no desire for him, no longing for him. I don't even, I, I, I kind of despise the people of God even. I, I don't want the things of God, but yet it does something for me to be among the people of God. And so, so I, I like it when it's all about us. 
If that's the case, Scripture would give you a stern warning to repent and to turn to Christ, to believe the gospel, the good news. Other times, we may not be Judas, but we might have been around a Judas. Someone that we look at and say, I, I never would have thought that one would be the one. It, it, by all appearances, looked like everything was great, and all of a sudden they, they're, they're showing a hatred for the things of Christ. How? And a lot of times it brings godly believers to a place of despair, of disillusionment, of, of somehow thinking, well, there's something, is there something wrong with, with God? And because, because, man, his church is sure pretty messed up. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with God. There certainly was something wrong with each of us. But Christ is the Lord of his church. We'll talk more about that, that human weakness in point three, but let's go to point two. How about Jesus? Jesus here, and this is what the, really the thrust of this sermon is about. Jesus is not a powerless, feeble victim. You see, we, we might have, especially those of us with big hearts, and, and as we go through these next weeks of studying and, and just traveling step by step to the cross, and when we finally get there in a few weeks, it, it, these are some hard passages emotionally. It, it, it should strike us. It should grab us. It should make us understand what Christ suffered and what he went through. It, it, it grabs the heart like nothing else. And it can lead some to, as you read, to start almost feeling sorry for, for Jesus in the position that he's in. And I understand the human heart does not want to see someone go through injustice and, and mocked and betrayed and the beard ripped out and all the things that are coming ahead of us in the cross. But in the midst of it, church, don't look at Jesus as a victim. He's not powerless. He's not feeble and weak, just getting controlled and thrown around and, 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 and not having a will to do it. He is the prophecy-fulfilling victor. That's what's happening in this passage. He's actually not a victim of circumstances. He's the Lord of every single circumstance. Look at verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus... John names him, Matthew doesn't, but we, we know it was Peter because John tells us. So Peter stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant. The guy's name was Malchus. That's what John tells us also. So he strikes the servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear. <laughs> Think about this. I mean, here's the scene. Judas comes and kisses Jesus and, and Peter in his impetuous nature, right? He was, he's the one that just announced, I, I, I'm going to die for you, I'll, whatever it takes, pulls out the sword. Now, first, what's Peter doing with a sword? <laughs> he's a fisherman, right? But somehow he's got a sword, and then he swipes at this guy. He doesn't, he, and he, I find it kind of funny. He doesn't pick the soldier with another sword. He picks the servant, <laughs> the servant of the high priest, this guy named Malchus. How about that? Malchus got in the Bible. <laughs> Can you imagine like being Malchus later on in life? Hey, I'm in the Bible. Oh, I, what? Well, it, my ear comes off. What else? That's it. My ear comes off. Well, Jesus heals it too. But he gets his ear cut off by Peter. What do you call that first and foremost? It's called this. <laughs> you see, Jesus was either, or Jesus, Peter was either a really good swordsman or a really bad swordsman. 
enough to miss the head, which is what I happened to think he was going for, and to hit the ear. How do you just chop off an ear and miss the whole head? I think he was a really bad swordsman. He, he cuts off his ear. Matthew doesn't tell us, but Jesus heals the guy's ear, puts his hand on him, and puts it right back. Here's what Matthew wants us to understand, verse 42. Jesus says to him, put your sword back into its place, Peter. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. See, Jesus is not only telling Peter something, he's telling Christians something through all generations that Christianity is not to be advanced by, by force. Certainly there's a sword that's to be wielded, but God has delegated that sword. And he's delegated, according to Scripture, to the state. The state bears the sword and does not bear the sword in vain. But we as the church do not advance the kingdom of God. We don't advance the mission of God by force. There are other religions that do that over, over history. And there have been times that some in the name of Christ have taken up the sword to, some, to, to, to supposedly advance the gospel. Jesus made it very clear. Put your sword away, Peter. Yeah, but Jesus, you need help. I want to help you. I don't need your help, Peter. First of all, there's 600 plus men here, probably up to 1,000 men here. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And then he goes and, and tells them what he really needs to understand in verse 53. He says, Peter, do you not think or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, do you think I'm defenseless? Do, do, do you think I, I can't pray to my father right here and right now? Do you not think that the very angels I'm talking about are, are here, right here and right now? We're told in the Gospels that there were angels there ministering to him already. Where did they go? I think they're standing right there, hand on sword, ready to, to do whatever they need to do on Jesus' command. I can pray to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion in the Roman army was 6,000 men. 6,000 times, tw uh, times 12 legions, is that what he says, right? 12 legions. What's 12 times 6, y'all? 72. 72,000 angels. And I remind you, that in 2 Kings chapter 19, one angel, just one, killed 180,000 men. The power of the supernatural. He says, Peter, I'm not helpless. I'm not standing defenseless. I don't need you to help me out here. Understand the power that I have. And it's not that he can't resist his arrest. It's that he will not resist his arrest. That he's choosing purposefully and intentionally not to resist the arrest because it was a part of the plan of God. That was all settled in his mind and heart in Gethsemane. Peter should have known that. Verse 54, it says, But how then 
should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so. So Jesus explains the reason why he's allowing these men to do with him whatever they want to do with him. It's actually not about what they want. It's what God wants. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled? At least on three other occasions in Matthew, as we've studied through the gospel, he'd already told the disciples that it was necessary for him to suffer and to die and then to be raised from the dead. The scriptures also predicted uh, David, the psalmist, uh, he predicted and, and prophesied that a close and trusted friend would be the one to betray Messiah. Isaiah foretold in his prophecy that he would be, the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, smicken, or stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our, our iniquities, and upon him would be the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Messiah would be oppressed and afflicted and slaughtered like a lamb that doesn't cry out. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And on and on and on in the scriptures, in Isaiah, in Zechariah, all throughout the Old Testament, it pointed to this moment. This is the hour. And the hour had come for the Messiah to suffer as had been prophesied in the scripture thousands of years before. Jesus knows that. He submits to the word of God. He submits to the Father and understands that what's going on is the fulfillment of these scriptures. In verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. See, he'd already won the public debate. They tried time and again to, to get him in public arguments, and he just smashed them. They, had, they didn't stand a chance against him, so now their cowardice is on display as they come to him at night secretly. And Jesus is pointing that out, letting him, make sure they know you guys are a bunch of cowards. That's what you are with your 600-plus men coming secretly. Yes, the scriptures are being fulfilled. And at that moment, what seemed that Jesus, when, when it looked like he had nothing to his advantage, no advantage at all, he still understood and knew with confidence that he had a father in heaven, that he had access to his father, and all the resources were his at his disposal. But Jesus submits himself to the will of the father as written in scripture. Again, he's in complete control. He's not a helpless victim. Think about it with me. Look who's giving the orders here. Friend, do what you can to do. Peter, put your sword back in its place. Have you guys come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. John in his gospel, gives an, a story that the other gospels don't include in, in, in verses 4 through 9 of John 18. It says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. I am he. I am. The great name of God. 
They knew exactly what he was saying. When he said those words, Judas, it says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Think about it. 600 to 1,000 men, Jesus says, he's, he's pulling it out of them, right? Who are you seeking? Who are you after? Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. I am 1,000 guys on their backs. Just showing them a little taste of his power. I'm so amazed that they didn't get up and just bow before him at that moment. Why? What's going on? The scripture is being fulfilled. But Jesus, in the midst of fulfilling the scripture, is also showing his power. So he asked them again, can you imagine? They get up, they dust off their, their, their robes and put their swords back away and a little bit frazzled. And Jesus says again, whom do you seek? <laughs> and I wonder if they were getting a little nervous at this point. Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these guys go. I don't know about you, but if, if a massive army that outnumbers you a thousand, you know, a thousand to one comes and surrounds you and they all have swords and you got one sword in your midst, you're not likely to be the one barking the orders. Hey, you all just sit down. You, you, you go over there, you do this, and you do that. <laughs> and by the way, you're after me, let these guys go. Again, all of this is showing he's in control. John tells us in verse 9 that this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. This is what he's talking about in John 17, a chapter earlier. In verse 12, it says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. He's praying this to the Father. I, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. All of it is about Jesus fulfilling scripture. And yet in the midst of it, he's loving and caring for the eleven. He's so gracious and kind to them, and, and he's making sure all things are coming about the way they need to come about, and that's the key to this whole text. Verse 54 of Matthew uh, 26, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus' mission was dictated by scripture. Submission to scripture, submission to the Father, submission to the word of God, and here's why this is encouraging to me. There's not anything outside of his control. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even we today can know and understand that Jesus will fulfill every single one of his promises. There's not one that he's going to let go and forget about. And, 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 oh, I'm sorry, that one slipped through the cracks. No, everything he said will be true and is true. So when he tells us, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you believe that promise? Because it's, it's, it's will be fulfilled. The word of God will never return void. It will accomplish all that it sets out to do. The promises of God will remain. And here we see the ultimate purpose of God, to redeem a people, to redeem lost sinners. Again, as we come now 
in the next few weeks towards the end of Matthew's gospel. We'll finish it on the, the last Sunday of December. And as we come to the end of the gospel, we're reminded of how it began. Way back in chapters 1 through 4. I don't know if you recall, but we heard that familiar phrase. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew was telling us about uh, of the fulfillments, and here Jesus does. There from Jesus' birth to his baptism, the scriptures are, are cited as, and, and they're specific. Here there's this broadening inclusiveness. It's as if Jesus is telling them, take all the prophets wrote, everything, convert all of their sayings together, and what do you have? You have me and my passion story. You have these events going on right now. He told them in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now he's acting them out. Paul, the great friend of Jesus, the one who would call himself the chief of sinners, but yet redeemed. Paul would later write about Jesus, and I think what Jesus certainly applauded in 2 Corinthians 1, where he said, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. The Son of Man of Daniel 7, yes. The New Covenant of Jeremiah 31, yes. The Suffering Servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, yes. The Forsaken and Mocked King of Psalm 22, yes. It's all Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus now resolves to go to the cross because he knows it's the will of God. And he knows it's the will of God because he knows his Bible. And his Bible speaks of him, the Messiah, and his sufferings as the climax of the whole thing. What do we do with all of this? What, how do we respond? And one thing we do is just marvel. We marvel at Christ. That's always a good application. We should have our jaws dropping regularly at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's see the story of Scripture unfold in the person of Jesus. And, and, and too often, we remove the story from the Bible and collapse it into an abstract, storified, if you will, gospel with some points of salvation, which is not wrong, right? We can say those things. God is holy. You're a sinner. God loved you so much that he sent Jesus, so repent and believe the gospel, and that's true. But ultimately, that's not how the gospels present the gospel or how Jesus shares it. He shares it in such a way that he roots his whole ministry in the whole story of Israel, of the old covenant, and the prophets, and the priests, and the kings, its saints, and its sinners, and all of the scriptures. It's all about him. The story of Jesus Christ, it's, it's not a, a story that comes out of nowhere like other made-up stories, like, like the Book of Mormon. And it is a timeless set of ideas as Plato's philosophical writings. The story of Jesus Christ is locked into one people, one history, and one scripture, and it makes sense only as it follows and completes the story of the people of God. 
So can we share the gospel without sharing the story of Scripture? I, I think Jesus would answer that question, no. I think Paul would likewise answer that question, no. In the most clearest definition of the gospel that I believe we have in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, listen to how Paul defines the gospel. He said, now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So to Paul, just as it was to Jesus, the question, how important is our knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament, is as important a question of how important is evangelism guys let's be people of the book let's study to show ourselves approved unto God let's not look at the Old Testament and, and relegate it to some things that are just difficult to understand and difficult to, to read and, and deal with let's dive into them and let's understand as we look into the scriptures that our gospel is the saving story of Israel lived out by the truth Israel, Jesus Christ, who, who lived and died and was buried and was exalted to God's right hand and will, who will soon come in glory to establish his kingdom forever. And so in light of that gospel, repent and believe and be baptized and receive the forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, life everlasting. And let's marvel at Jesus. Pastor David and I have tried for now these 110 Sundays that we've been in Matthew. We've tried to, to gospel the gospel of Matthew, if you will. Knowing that the more people who understand the full story, the more likely they are to marvel at Jesus. The one Always in complete control. The one who is the victor, not the victim. Let's not feel sorry for Jesus. He's going to his death, and in his death, he will conquer. Let's end with point three quickly. We go from the victor back to weakness. Verse three, or point three, Jesus is failed by his followers who think the cost of discipleship is too high. Verse 56. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, Jesus says again. And then it closes this section with some difficult words. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Judas betrayed Jesus. The 11 now fail Jesus. And I want to point out, as we come to the end of today's sermon, that there's a difference, I believe, between betraying Jesus and failing Jesus. Betrayal of Judas shows 
the reality of, of false disciples. Those who display outward affection for Christ, but inside have a hatred for Christ because it's always been about them. It was always about Judas and his heart. His, his, his mind, his thoughts were driven selfishly. His will was a selfish will. His affections were not for Christ, but for himself. He was marked by self-interest and deceit and hypocrisy. And you come to the 11, which we're going to be studying a bit deeper in the coming weeks as we look especially at Peter and his failure. The 11 leave him. The moment that he would have needed them the most, they were sleeping. And the moment that he will now be bound and taken captive, they run away. Peter does follow at a close distance, maybe like some of us. But all 11 failed, probably from weakness and fear. Yet their lives also show they loved Jesus. They loved him. And perhaps you and I might be in a similar position today where from weakness, from fear, from struggles with your own sin that you have failed him time and time again and you're here today and you're beating yourself up and you're struggling from the bottom of your heart and with a sense of I do love you Jesus I I just keep falling and failing and when the fires of testing come and there's a price to be paid and there's sacrifice that needs to be made or something needs to be laid down and it's hard and it's difficult too often we're weak and afraid and unfaithful and ineffective we fall asleep with good intentions like the disciples. We're overconfident, so we don't feel a need to pray today. Everything's pretty good right now. But, yeah, the fire's coming. The test is coming. Pray now. Pray now and be ready. We get impulsive. We respond emotionally and not according to revelation, not according to truth. We lean on our own understanding. We get impatient. Anxious. Maybe feel like Peter, I, I need to help you out a little bit, Jesus. You're taking too long. You're, you're, you're not doing it my way. I pull my sword because I want to avoid the pain at any cost. Not remembering the Lord doesn't need your help. His battles are won in his power alone. Or perhaps we're worldly, depending on fleshly power for protection, where Scripture says the weapons of our warfare are spiritual and mighty in God. Jesus told them back in verse 31 of chapter 26, you will all fall away because of me this night. So what's happening is, again, not a surprise. He had already said it. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But verse 32, Jesus had given what I see now as very comforting words. I hope and encourage them even in the midst of their failures. He said in verse 32, but after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. You're going to drop the ball. You're going to fail. But I'm going to meet you later. And you're going to be strengthened. And you, 11, 
plus a few more are going to change the world. You see, failure doesn't define the Christian. Peter's failure did not define him. It's horrible, stumbling and humbling along the path of following Jesus. We're going to look deeper at this shortly, but Peter in particular knew he didn't deserve the mercy he receives from Christ later. But see, what Jesus is doing in the midst of his suffering and passion is the very thing that frees the guilt from the sinner, the very thing that releases us from the penalty of sin, from sin identifying any one of the people of God. One of Peter's good friends, James, would write later, for we all stumble in many ways. And that's very true, isn't it? And when Jesus chose us to be his disciples, he knew. He knew our future failures as sure as he knew Peter's. We might look at ourselves and be surprised at our own depravity, but Jesus isn't. We might be tempted to say, that, that's not the real me, but Jesus understands that it is, and apart from him, we can do nothing. So facing and admitting our failures is one of the ways that Jesus teaches us the gospel. Our failures show us what we are apart from Christ, great sinners, but that's not what he wants us to focus on. He wants us to look to the cross and allow our failures to show us what is the most true, that Jesus is a great Savior, and in that we rejoice that we can read in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Jesus is accomplishing his victory. Oh, I look forward to these next weeks where we get to dive deeper into the price that he paid for us. And I pray it just leads to greater worship, greater awe at Christ, but also greater freedom from sin. As God takes your own affections and, and replaces anything, any affection for, for the world, any affection for anything that's not his, and replaces it with himself. May we celebrate with great and deep joy what we have in him.